Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously, Lord. We truly, Lord, we love you. We give you thanks for this place that you have given to us and for your voice that has called us here to worship you. You've called us, Lord, to this, to this gathering and this group of people to be family with one another, to be one in Jesus together, to not just open your word and to study together, but to truly live your life together. So we give you humble thanks for who you are. We give you humble thanks, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us. And I'm asking, Lord, that this morning that you would make your heart and your mind known to each one of us as we travel through the section of your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so remember that as we are going through the book of Acts, we have this man, Luke, who has, it seems that he has done a thorough investigation in regards to the testimony of Jesus. So that he's gone and he's had interviews and he's asked questions. And in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he's writing this letter to Theophilus because he, is, he wants to give an orderly account of all that Jesus did, of all that he said, of the cross, of the resurrection. As we sit here in the book of Acts, it's part two of that gospel where he's still writing to Theophilus. So even as we looked at last week where there was a certain man, Aeneas, there's an assumption that Luke interviewed this man Aeneas and he got his testimony and this is what we talked about last week same thing did Luke sit down with Tabitha this woman who died who the Lord used Peter to bring her back to life did Luke sit down and have a conversation with Tabitha or has he interviewed other people is he sitting with Peter and say tell me what the Lord was doing give me give me the scenarios and the accounts and the miracles that he performed and why the Lord was doing all these things. So as we sit in this account this morning, Acts chapter 10, there is a, the gospel is now going into a Gentile man, into a Gentile household. This is a huge breakthrough when it comes to the entire word of God. Um, as we sit in this text this morning, we're going to try and pull out some of the culture and trying to pull out some of the emotion that they would be sitting in this and how foreign of an idea that Gentiles can have the same salvation in Jesus Christ that Jews can. This is an idea that we take for granted today. I'm not a Jew. I am a Gentile. And I've never had to cross over this hurdle of can I have a relationship with the Lord or not? So as we travel through here, we're dealing with a lot of cultural issues. So verse 1, chapter 10 says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius. He's a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devil, and prayed to feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms, your giving, your charitable giving, has come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. 
When the angel who spoke with to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier uh, from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here, the, the scene, again, we have to attempt to sit in this culture and this community. The nation of Rome is a military and government oppressor to the nation of Israel. So here, this community of Caesarea, it's on the Mediterranean Sea. This is the hub of Roman power over the Jews in this, in this nation. And it would be, I've never lived in this context. We can imagine, but for the Jews, as they are considering the Romans, Specifically, is they're considering government and military powers of Rome. These are individuals that they would really have nothing to do with. These people would be unclean. They would be unholy. These would be representing the authority of Satan in their lives, not the authority of God in their lives. So when we talk about this man, that his name is Cornelius and that he's a centurion, he represents an oppressor. He represents somebody who has power over my life that ought not to have power over my life. But we get this snapshot of him that he is a devout man. That means that he is a reverent man. It says that he is one who feared God with all of his household. It says that he is doing, uh, he's giving charitable uh, finances, he's giving money generously to the community, so to widows, to orphans, he's there supporting the Jews there in the community of Caesarea, and it says that he is praying to God always. So this is, or talking to my mom a little bit about this before we came in here, but this is the, the reality that we have to sit in. Here's a snapshot of a pretty impressive man. He is a reverent man. He is a man who fears God. He is a man who is acting according to good and godly behavior. He is giving of his own resources to the community, and he's seeking not idols, not the idols of his culture, but he's seeking the true and living God through prayer. As we travel through this chapter, it is very clear this man does not have salvation in Jesus Christ at this point, nor does this man have the righteousness that God gave to Abraham at this point. This is an unsaved, unregenerate man. How many of you know people, good people, reverent people? People who believe in God, people who serve their community, people who give of their resources and their time to lift up others, whether they're, um, you know, people that are down, people that are different from them. Do you know individuals like that that have no relationship with Jesus? That's, that's the description that we have of Cornelius. And here, as we sit in this idea what we want to as we go through this we want to focus and concentrate what is it that we that God is revealing to us about his heart and his mind because here again here's a man who our culture most definitely would say this man's going to go to heaven He's a good guy. He's praying to the Lord. He's doing all of the right things for sure. God's going to let that man go into heaven. 
But God in this chapter is definitely revealing to us, no, he won't without a relationship with Jesus Christ. But because God loves Cornelius, because God sent his son to die for the sins of Cornelius, the Lord is initiating an interaction with Cornelius to bring about the revelation of Jesus to him so that he can spend all eternity in the presence of God. So he sends an angel. And this vision, this idea of a vision, this is, it's not a dream. He is awake, but this is something that he has seen. It is very clear. Um, we're going to contrast that with this trance that Peter gets into in a minute. But here, God sends an angel, a messenger, calls Cornelius' name. The whole idea of fear, of being afraid. Being afraid is the position of feeling like you have no power. When you are afraid, you don't have power over the circumstances. You're afraid, you're afraid of what's going to happen to you. You're afraid of what's going to happen to somebody that you love. You're afraid of the circumstance, of the unknown. You don't feel like you have power to have victory or power to, to achieve what needs to be done in the circumstance. And you find yourself in this position of fear. In the exposure of the supernatural to us, we see this throughout the word of God. As human beings, when an angel comes, when the Lord shows up, there is this position of powerlessness. There's this recognition of his holiness, of his majesty. Here, this, this very clear vision of this angel is being sent to him. It's not bodily like we are physical before one another, but this is something that he has seen and the emotion that it brings up in him is this position of no power. But the testimony that's given to Cornelius is, Cornelius, your prayers, your conversation with God, your giving, your good deeds, these are things that God has seen. These are not things that he has ignored. These are things, even in his life, I guarantee that God has orchestrated circumstances in the life of Cornelius, given him opportunity and here, God's love and his attention and his desire for Cornelius is that Cornelius would be in his son in a relationship with the Father for all eternity. And the instruction that he's given is, I want you to send for this man. And when this man, Simon, comes, he's going to tell you the things that you must do. Again, God interacting, intervening, initiating this experience in Cornelius' life to bring about his son's salvation in Cornelius' life. So jumping into Peter there in verse 9, it says the next day. So day one, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon when this vision comes. At the end of the vision, he sends for two of his servants and a devout soldier, and he sends them to Caesarea. Caesarea is 30 miles these guys are moving. They get to uh, Peter, 30 miles to the south, in, uh, a little bit after noon the next day. So the next day, as they're on their journey, they're traveling, they're drawing near to the city, Peter goes up on the housetop to pray at the sixth hour, so it's noon. And he began to be very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And saw heaven opened, and an object like a great sheet bound at four corners descended to him, and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Peter said to him, not so, Lord, 
for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Most of you are already familiar with the passage and the context. You know, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Uh, We're going to see that as we travel on in a minute in the text. But sit in this scene in Peter's shoes as much as we can. So here he's in Joppa, right? He came to Joppa um, as they called for him there. This is where Tabitha came back to life. He's still in this community. Talked about last time that Peter's wife is more than likely there with him. She's probably downstairs in the home making the meal ready there with the other Simon's wife. Peter's on the rooftop. He's praying at noon. He's getting hungry. He wants to eat. It says he falls into this trance, and literally a trance, is, it's, this, it's an ecstatic vision. This, it's something that is amazing, and it's an astonishment. It's, it's, different, it's different in language, and I've never had a vision or a trance, so I just get to sit in definitions with you. I've had dreams, but I haven't had this kind of stuff occur in my relationship with the Lord. But here, there's, there's something that God is doing for Peter and to Peter so that as Peter walks away from this circumstance, even though he's left with questions and with doubt, when God's plans and purposes come about in the household of Cornelius, that Peter will be without doubt, this is of God. And this again, as we sit in, what does this reveal to you and to me about God's heart? What does it reveal to about his mind and his plans and his purposes? So here, God is the one who has given the commands in the Old Testament in regards to uh, animals that can be eaten and animals that can't be eaten. For Peter, in this culture, even we can sit in this even with Jews today. So whether you are in this culture, whether you're just a cultural Jew or a religious Jew, there are things that you just will not eat, period. And the, the, the heaviness, the weight of this is that um, you would have to step into the emotion of I would rather die than put that in my mouth. So who's heard of the phrase, I could eat a horse? You know, it's not that I am so hungry that I could eat a thousand pounds of meat. It's I'm so hungry that I can eat an animal that we don't normally eat. Anybody ever had horse meat before? Bob, put your hand down. That's just messed up. Dogs in this country are our pets. You go to other nations and they eat dogs. Again, there's, there's an idea, like, does that well up in you, the emotion of, like, that's disgusting. Most people would rather die than public speak. I mean, again, this is the emotion that we have to try and sit in and understand. Here he's having this ecstatic, astounding vision where the heaven is opened, just like when the heaven is opened when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus on the day of his baptism and anointed the Lord. Here Peter is seen Heaven opened, and out of heaven is descending this object. And it said it looks like this sheet. 
that's bound by the four corners. And as it's let down to the earth and the sheet unfolds, there's all these different kinds of animals, camels and horses and pigs and lambs and goats and snakes and critters, lions and bears and tigers, oh my, everything that you can think of. And the voice of the Lord tells Peter, get up, sacrifice that animal, kill that animal and eat it. And Peter is, no way. And how would you feel if you were Peter? Do you think Peter's being disobedient to God here? Or do you think Peter thinks that he's being tested by the Lord? If I were in Peter's shoes, I think that God would be testing me in some fashion. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on here, but the Lord is testing me. We have the command in his word not to eat this food. No, Lord, not so. I will not do that. God's repetition here. He uses repetition often to make sure that we understand, um, to make sure that we see the importance of what is going on. Peter is using this language in regards to what is common and unclean. The word common, it's going to be contrasted with the word holy. So in the Old Testament, something that is common is excluded from the holiness of God. It is not uh, allowed in the religious Uh, services and the sacrifices. Uh, An object that is common can't be used in, uh, again, the religious practices of the Jews. So that's the contrast there. The word being unclean, this is something or someone that is ritually, religiously unclean according to the law of God and according to God's heart in the Old Testament. And Peter is saying, nothing has ever crossed my lips that you have not said that I can eat. Those things that you've declared that are common, that are set apart from your community, Lord, and um, those things that are unclean, those things that would make me impure in regards to my relationship with you, those things have never crossed my lips. And Peter, again, he sat with Jesus. He knows Jesus is teaching. It's not the things that are on their outside. It's not the things that we take into us that defile us. It's the things that come out of the heart that defile us. Peter knows these things. But again, in his culture, in his context, this is something that is very, very challenging to him. And again, the voice of God to Peter there in verse 15 says, what God has cleansed, what God has made clean, you must not call common. Read Psalm 29 really quick, and I'm only going to do this because this was in my devotional reading this week, just talking about the voice of God. Give unto the Lord. This is a psalm of praise, a song, a poem of praise. Give unto the Lord, O you sons of God. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, seven different statements about the voice of God. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty, of beauty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, these these pillars of wood. Again, the idea, the poetic imagery is strength. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian, like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. 
The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength. He will give refuge and protection to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. I come back in here just as we are talking about God's voice in our life, whether it's through his creation, whether it's through his word, through his son, through his spirit, God speaks to us continually and his voice is something that is very powerful. We have that imagery with Elijah. Sometimes the Lord's voice, it's still, it's small. It's just, sometimes it seems like it's just barely there. Other times the Lord's voice is just there like thunder grabbing our attention. I'm not sure for Peter, as the voice of the Lord is speaking to him now outside of uh, this ecstatic vision, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to him again. But this declaration at the end of this psalm, the Lord will give strength to his people and the Lord will bless his people with peace. We're going to see that as it shows up in the gospel as presented by Peter to Cornelius. So here the voice of God back in Acts is speaking to Peter. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Verse 17 says, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down, go with them, doubting nothing. Why? For I have sent them. Peter went down to the men who had been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius is the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. So we'll get to the second one there. So now, like day two, this is the next day after Cornelius' vision. Peter, it says in verse 17, the idea, this word wonder, it means that he was perplexed, that he was doubting, and that he was hesitant in regards to the vision that God had just given to him. It is something that is in absolute contrast to his entire relationship with God, his entire life. It is, stands in contrast to everything that he has been taught in regards to this subject matter. And as he is thinking about this, I guarantee the, the thoughts about his hunger have gone away and he is sitting there, what in the world just happened? What does this mean? God is telling me to eat these things, not to call common what he has made clean. He's, he's doubting, he's hesitant, and he's meditating on all of these thoughts in his mind. The voice of God comes to him again. The Holy Spirit speaks to him. He says, Peter, open your eyes. Behold, this is, this is an imperative. This is a command. Open your eyes. 
There's three men that are standing outside and they're looking for you. I want you to go down from the roof and I want you to go with them and I, want, I don't want you to doubt anything. I want you to know I have sent them to you. Cornelius didn't send them. Ultimately, again, the heart of God in this. God is initiating everything in this chapter. Cornelius isn't looking for the Lord, but the Lord revealed himself and is orchestrating the circumstances of his life so that he will meet Jesus. Peter isn't seeking out the Gentiles in his life as he's going and traveling throughout the nation of Israel, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is not going to the Gentiles proclaiming the message. This takes an act of God in Peter's life to move him to where God wants him to be. He's obedient, he's making himself available. God knows that he is doubting. God knows the thoughts of our heart. He knows exactly what he's processing through. And again, that encouragement, Peter, don't doubt. I've sent these men. So he comes down. These guys are outside the gates. They give the testimony that there's this divine instruction to our master, to our leader, Cornelius. And he has sent us here. So this holy angel told us to come and get you so that you could come to Cornelius' house and so that you could speak a message to us, so that you could speak words to us. And that's the context of the rest of this chapter. So last half of verse 23 there, it says the next day, so this is now the third day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied accompanied him. Yeah, I'll say that once. All right. Um. So, right, day one, Cornelius has a vision. Day two, Peter has his vision. The end of day two, these guys show up. They're at the gate. They spend the night there. Even this whole idea that they came in as a guest of Simon the Tanner's house, um, that is something that does not happen culturally at all. And now, the day three, they're traveling together. Verse 24, the following day. So, this is now three days after Cornelius' vision. It says, the following day, they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. And he talked with him and went in and found many who had come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God, there's so many amazing contrasting statements in regard to God. God has shown to me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent me? So as we sit in the, these sentences here, as Peter has been processing this information, as he, these men were invited into Simon the Tanner's home, more likely they shared dinner with one another, more likely they're having conversation on the road. Peter is continuing to meditate in regards to the vision that the Lord had given him and that the words of the Lord. And when Peter shows up and he enters into Cornelius' home, he's coming into a home that for him, this is absolutely forbidden. Well, there go my glasses. This is absolutely forbidden um, for you to enter into 
the home of, this, of these people who were ethnically different from you. And Peter, his, the words that come out of his mouth, he's the Cornelius and his household, they recognize the rules of the community. Peter and his entourage clearly recognize the rules of the community, that this is something that the culture has said, you know, again, the Jews were supposed to be separate, but they were supposed to be separate in a way that they were shining light to the Gentiles, and Gentiles could still be converted to Judaism, but here it's don't even go into these dogs. And this is, uh, we can sit in, in our own culture, but ultimately, any time that we create a distinction of any group any class of people, ethnicity, any group of people, anytime we create a distinction where we place one above another, that is contrary to the heart of God. And this is the declaration of Peter. God has made known to me, he has shown me that I should not utter the words that that person and that that group of people, uh, that race of people, that, uh, that political persuasion of people, that nation of people, that class of people, those words of distinction ought to never cross my lips. Now, what is not being said when God says that he has made the unclean clean and the common holy, He is not saying that there's a universal salvation for all humanity through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because if that was true, Peter doesn't need to go to Cornelius and share the gospel. But what is being communicated is that Jesus Christ, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who sent his son to die for the sins of all humanity was not sent to condemn human beings, but was sent to save human beings and not just the Jews, but all humanity. And this is, again, this is, it's probably easy for most of us. Culturally in this, this was not easy for Peter at all. And this whole idea, this is going to carry forward in the next chapters of, of, of uh, Acts as we go through it. We see it in Galatians, even as Peter backpedals a little bit and, and Paul has to confront him. But this is just, you know, a walk away, a snapshot of the heart of God in our minds And in our hearts, in our language, what comes out of our heart and in our behavior, may we not utter the words of distinction exalting one man or another man or one group of people over another group of people because our God has declared all people worthy of coming to him through Jesus. Verse 30, Cornelius said, four days Four days ago, I was fasting, so what's the reason? Give me the, give me the narrative is what Peter's asking for. So Cornelius recounts, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and call Simon here. His surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner. By the sea, when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Look at that heart of Cornelius, his household. Um, 
as Cornelius has had this interaction, this supernatural interaction with God, he has given the, the testimony and the accounts to those who are in his house, whether they're servants, whether they're part of um, you know, the community, the military community that he's a part of, whether these are his relatives and family members. He has been speaking to all who know him and will listen to him about what God has done. And he's sitting in anticipation and expectation that, um, that when this man comes, I'm going to hear God's heart. I'm going to hear words from God. And why God doesn't just deliver these words divinely? Well, how many, how, did God just like rend the heavens and speak to you? Or has he used other human beings to come into your life to proclaim and preach Jesus to you? This is what I love about as often as we gather together, as often as we open up the word together, that we are gathering in the presence of God. We're not gathered here to hear my voice. We are gathered here to hear the voice of God. We're here to hear his words. And we're here to hear the words of things that he has commanded. Jesus told the disciples that all authority had been given to him to go to the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. So this relationship that we have with our God, he has given direct orders and direct commands. These are things that we're to guard and keep and obey, not out of self-righteousness, but always just, he is the one that has given us a new heart that desires to hear from him, that desires to not just obey him, but to bring him glory through our thoughts and through our words and through our actions. Verse 34, Peter opens his mouth. I love it when Peter opens his mouth. This man preaches some incredible messages. This next section that we're going to read through, um, we're going to read down through verse 43. There is a lot in here. We are not going to drill down into the depths of any of this this morning, but I would invite you to drill down on your own. Because what he is conveying here is he's conveying the gospel. Again, we've watched Peter in multiple scenarios um, in the book of Acts as he is communicating the gospel. Each time there's a little bit different flavor. There's some similarities. There's some differences. Peter opens his mouth and he begins this. In truth, I perceive, I grasp, like I get it, that God shows no partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. And this word means to unjustly treat one person better than another. God does not unjustly treat anybody. He is without favoritism and he is without partiality. This is not just a head knowledge sentence for Peter. This is something that he is experiencing and his light bulbs are going on in regards to what his Savior has done for humanity and not just his countrymen. Next verse, verse 35. But in every nation, every ethnic group, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him, is pleasing to him. Bearing testimony about Cornelius. Cornelius is of another ethnic group. He is a man who fears God. He is a man who is working righteousness, justice, in his community, in his life. And we're told that his prayers and his almsgiving, these are things that were remembered before God. These things were pleasing to God. 
Verse 36, the word, the gospel literally, which God sent to the sons of Israel, preaching, and this is, this is evangelizing. Again, this is all gospel content, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. Remember in Psalm 29, that end, that he will give peace to his people. The Father has sent his Son to the children of Israel, preaching peace, preaching the gospel of peace through Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. He is Lord over all. That word, literally, it's, the, it's the, that message, that statement. Uh, this is something that you know. This is something which was proclaimed. It took place throughout all Judea. And began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. That testimony there at Jesus' baptism. Testimony of his life. He went about in this nation, wherever he went, he went about doing good and healing. We talked about this last week, restoring all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Individuals who the devil was exercising authority over them. Restoration that he provided. God was present with Jesus wherever he went. Jesus tells us that the words that came out of his mouth were sourced from his father. The actions that he did were sourced from his father. He went where the Father directed, did what the Father said, even to the death of the cross. Verse 39, Peter saying, we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Whom they killed, they executed by hanging on a tree, the cross. Him, Jesus, God raised on the third day. And showed him, he gave him openly, visibly, but not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection was physical, a physical body. He ate with them, he drank with them, they touched him, they heard him, they interacted with him. They saw his death, they saw him after his resurrected. And it's he, Jesus has commanded us to proclaim, to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained, appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Listen to these words that are coming out of Peter's mouth. These, these words have new, a new meaning and a new context and a full truth in regards to the heart of God. He began in the beginning of chapter 2 of Acts quoting Joel that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The whoever just took on new definition for Peter. As he's in the house of a home that his culture forbids him to be in. Cornelius has had an interaction with the Lord that was initiated by God. Peter has had an interaction with the Lord that was initiated by God. They're both being obedient to God's direction. 
The Holy Spirit is moving upon Peter's mind and heart. He's moving upon Cornelius' mind and his heart. And there is a fuller revelation and knowledge and understanding in regards to the heart and mind of God that has been consistent from the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This has always been his plan A. And here he's being able to communicate that he has made, the Father has made Jesus the judge of the living and the dead. We are told that God judges in righteousness, that his judgment is just, that his judgment is gracious and merciful. But his judgment is true. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He is my judge. He is your judge. And the judgment of our life, the declaration of whether we are clean, have been made holy through Jesus, his nature, his character, his sacrifice, his resurrection, his power. Or if we have not, that's the ultimate judgment that he will sit in as judge. And you can turn to the end chapters of Revelation for that specific context. To him, all the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament... The voice of God through men of the Old Testament, they have preached it through his name, through the Messiah, that whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness, the remission of sins, the removal of sins, whoever. And the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. This is something that I pray that the Holy Spirit will do to us often. May he interrupt our lives with his will day in and day out. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And the idea of hearing, though, it's listening. Um, there's an assumption that everybody that's here, everybody that's in this room, the Holy Spirit falls upon all of them. They all come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's always hard, I think, to paint a broad brush across any circumstance and any community. This word, when it talks about hearing, we do not gather together just to hear the words, but we gather together to listen to God's voice. What is it that he has spoken? Why is it that he has preserved these words? Why is it that he initiated Luke to write these words in the first place? What is it about these words that are exposing to me the mind of God and the heart of God and the acts of God? While Peter was speaking, this message, these specific words... Holy Spirit falls upon those who heard, who listened to the word, to the logos. And those of the circumcision who believed, so the, um, these are Jews who have been circumcised, believers in Jesus Christ who came along with Peter. Peter's in this category, the circumcision. It says that they were astonished. They are utterly amazed, as many as came with Peter, because the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, on this ethnic group also. This is something that is shocking to them. 
It is outside of their culture. It's outside of their religion. It's outside of their tradition. This is something new that God is doing, and he has made it apparent to all, not just in the initiation of this, but the conclusion of the matter as he's giving the gift promised to the nation of Israel, the gift that Jesus promises, he ascended to the Father, that the Father and the Son would send the Helper, would send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God taking up residence in us. No longer a physical temple where God dwells, but he dwells in us spiritually and physically within our own hearts. The Gentiles are now given the same gift of the Holy Spirit, and it's being done in a way that nobody can deny what's going on. Because when the Holy Spirit was poured out, it says they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Different than the day of Pentecost, those tongues on the day of Pentecost were speaking known languages and other languages that people were hearing. Uh, those who were filled with the Holy Spirit speaking the wonderful works of God in their own languages. Here it's this, it seems to be um, tongues of praise that the Holy Spirit is upon them. He has given a gift to them. He has taken up residence in them because they believe in Jesus Christ and the words about Jesus that Peter is proclaiming. They are magnifying, they are exalting, they are making God large in their presence. There is no glorification of man anywhere in this passage. This is all revealing God's heart. It says, then Peter answers, can anyone forbid, prevent, hinder water that these should not be baptized who receive the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Look, so Peter's culture says, Peter, we hinder you, we prevent you by religion, by culture, by tradition from having anything to do with these other ethnic groups. And through the initiation of God, through the word of God, through the vision of God, through this miracle and multiple miracles that are being performed in this situation, God is doing this so that Peter those who are witnessing this, and that the church in general will not be able to denounce and reject what God is doing. Because when God does stuff that's outside of our cultural boxes, we don't like it when God messes with our cultural boxes. When God is doing something that's outside of the norm, and he had to make it evident that this is of me. This is my heart. This is my plan. This is my goal. This is my purpose. I'm sending you to the children of Israel, yes, but I am sending you to all nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will hear the gospel and bow their knee before Jesus as Lord. And Peter is bringing up, here's this hindrance in our culture we have all just witnessed what God is doing brothers who just came with me are any one of you going to hinder these individuals from being baptized in the name of the father son the holy spirit yes or no all of them are saying nope and as they are baptized in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit listen listen what does Peter do he commands them in this, when, when God sends the angel to Cornelius, in the beginning, he says that Peter's going to tell, th- tell you things that you must do. 
When Peter shows up, the words out of, out of uh, Cornelius' mouth is, we've all gathered before God to hear the things, that you're, uh, things commanded to you by God. And when he speaks these things, and, and again, the Holy Spirit is poured out, the end of this is they are responding in faith to what Jesus did, to who Jesus is, Peter, in the authority that has been given to them, commands them to be baptized. Why? They'd already received the Holy Spirit. Do they need the Holy Spirit to be saved? No. But Jesus commanded in the very beginning, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded. What has Jesus commanded us to do with those who respond in faith to Jesus? Be initiated into the community. As we travel through the book of Acts, I've brought this up before and I continue to mention it. If you have already responded to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you have not been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you are disobedient to the command of God. There's nothing that you need to wait for. It's not a work of righteousness. It's a work of love. It's a work of obedience. It's a work of identification. Roman tells us that when we go underneath the water, that we are identifying ourselves with Jesus' death. The God who created the heavens and the earth sent his son to die for my sins on the cross. We stand before each other publicly and say, that is my savior. His death It's the payment for the death that I deserve. We're told that, again, it's this imagery, the the mikvahs, these baths, these ritual baths, they were already part of the Jewish religion. Uh, John was out there baptizing in the wilderness. John's baptism is different than this baptism. This is saying, Jesus is mine and I am his. I identify myself with his death. I am no longer living, but God is living in me and through me. He's given me a new heart. He's given me a new mind. He's given me a new target. I'm following him. I'm not following the world. The devil doesn't have any authority over my life. Jesus has given me the victory. As we come up out of the water, it's that symbol of the old man is gone. The old man has been taken off. The new man, Jesus' righteousness, I'm clothed in him. Again, we all struggle with the reality of these things. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Again, the command that we have in the body of Christ is that for each one of us who responds in faith to Jesus, it is your responsibility to be obedient to Jesus and to be baptized in his name, initiating in yourself into that community, and not just yourself. Again, it's, it's a recognition, it's an identification of the work that's already been done. But those who don't, usually there's the, the focus becomes internal because I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, I'm not ready, I'm afraid, I don't understand. Um, um, we see historical tradition, uh, many people waited till late in their life to be baptized because there's, there's traditions that taught if you sin again after you're baptized, that's it for you. 
So a lot of people waited until their deathbed to be baptized because we all know that we can't live this life of righteousness apart from God. We all make mistakes. But the heart that is being communicated here of now that you've heard and now that you've responded, now grow, now obey, mature, follow Jesus with all that you are. And he stays in this community and he invests in them for a period of time as they're all just relishing in the joy of a new life in Jesus Christ. Amen? Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. And we do, Lord, we give you praise. I am thrilled day in and day out to just rejoice in you, to thank you. I'm thankful for the men and the women who are here this morning. They haven't come to hear my words, but they've come to hear your words. They're sitting before you and they're attentive to you. Their prayers that they have prayed, Lord, they rise up to you for a memorial. They are a sweet-smelling aroma to you. Father, the, the acts of giving, the acts of service, that the men and women have done in this room. These are things that have risen up to you, Lord. You see these things. And just like I am confident of your initiative in my life, I am confident in your initiative in each one of these people's lives, Lord. That you've injected yourself into their context that you've revealed yourself, you've shown them your mind and your heart and your truth. Most of us, Lord, we've responded to you in just love and adoration and submission. All of us, Lord, we, we fight with the desires of our own hearts and our own minds and we ask that you would just overcome us and our will and replace it with your own. Through your grace, Lord, through your mercy, Thank you for your patience with each one of us. Lord, for the, for the man or the woman that doesn't feel worthy, that doesn't feel clean, that doesn't feel holy, I'm asking that you'd help them just like Peter was able to grasp, Lord, that you'd help them to grasp your love for them your plan for them, how you've called each, how you are specifically, Lord, moving and speaking and working in each life and in our congregation as a whole, Lord, in the body of Christ throughout this world. Let us know you, Lord. Let us know your love. Let us know your grace. Let us know your son. Let us know your spirit. May our faith, Lord, may it be in you, not in the wisdom of man, but in the very power of God. Manifest yourself amongst us, Lord. Declare yourself. Bring about the circumstances that are necessary in our lives where there is no possibility of denying that you are the king who is enthroned for all eternity. We love you and we long to see you, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.